the last time I got to lead worship, we sing on Wednesday nights for prayer meeting. This was a little bit different than that. I remember uh, when I pastored a small church in Oak Ridge, we had a, a lady who would come and sing for us. She was a member of the church, and she was kind of tasked with doing this. Uh, but she had young children. She had an unbelieving husband. And so there were times in which uh, Sunday morning would roll around and we would expect her to be there and she wouldn't be there. And I would have to then get up and lead as the pastor of the church. And uh, we had this really kind uh, elderly woman who would play the piano. And she would play the piano. She would do the introduction. And then I would start to sing. And the only thing that I would hear was my singing and her playing the piano. And then her going, mm-mm, and cycling around again until I would start at the right place. And sometimes we do that two or three times. And so... Uh, this, this went so far much better. We've only got one song left, so praise God for that. Uh, I don't know if it sounded good, but at least I didn't come in at the wrong time. So uh, we are gathered here this evening to celebrate the ordination of Josh LeBeau. We are also here because he's being ordained and, way, and the reason why he is being ordained is to celebrate the goodness of our good shepherd. We've done this before. We've had an elder installation service, so what's different about this? What is the purpose of ordination? While we have installed him as an elder, ordination is something of a more formal process to actually recognize him, not just within our church, but outside of our church. It is a council of ordained men who come together to question Josh about pastoring, about the faith, about theology and practice, to recognize him as one who is faithful within gospel ministry. So now he is not just an elder or a pastor to us, but he is recognized as ordained by our collection of churches. He is set aside for the gospel ministry. In recognizing that, we recognize even from the passage that we read today that there is only one true good shepherd. Not only does Jesus set himself up like that in the book of John, but even so, Peter reminds us in what in a passage that we have already read. And when the chief shepherd appears, he says in 1 Peter 5, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We, as elders, as shepherds, are nothing but under-shepherds. We simply do what Christ commands us to do. We do not have right over the sheep to do as we would want. He is the chief shepherd. We are hired by him, as it were, to help complete the goals and the tasks that he has set for his church. This is what the word pastor means. Elder implies something of Christian maturity, but pastor means nothing more than shepherd. It's just the Latin version of the word for shepherd. I am thankful that actually I get to do this particular service, that I get to preach it, because I'm beginning to think and I'm beginning to feel that talking about pastoring and preaching about pastoring is one of my favorite things to preach on. It's not because I'm particularly good at it, but it's because I feel like I particularly need it. Recently, uh, I would suggest this podcast to anyone who's willing to listen to it, although I will tell you uh, that there are many adult themes that are covered in it. Uh, Christianity Today has a podcast going about Mars Hill, which is a church in Seattle. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's an interesting podcast because it talks about how this megachurch, over the course of about two decades, began to gain influence in our culture, specifically in a culture that would be really close to our culture. Uh, a church that is, is fairly Calvinistic, a church that is fairly Reformed in its practice, it is also Baptistic in its theology, they would be close to where we are. 
It was a growing church, a well-known church. It was a church that was foundational in starting a church planting network called Acts 29. We would have much in common with this church. Yet behind the scenes, this church was filled with filth. Pastors that were filled with anger and selfishness and quite clearly rampant spiritual abuse. It is an extreme example of what a bad shepherd is. What happens when a man is not called to task by those who surround him. A man who is not hemmed in by godly men. A man who is let to go on his own desires for appreciation, for worldly recognition. It is an extreme example, yet, but for the grace of God go I, and Richard, and Josh. This is a tale of horrible work by elders, not just one elder, but all of the elders of that church. So it is good to remind ourselves of what good shepherds look like. It is good to remind ourselves of what good pastors look like so that we, as elders, the three of us, would know how we are to handle ourselves, but what's more, so that the rest of you would know what to hold us accountable to. And it is important that you do so. It is important that you know, that you see it, that you find it in us. If we are simply to be Jesus under shepherds, we must ask, what does that look like? There is a great piece of Scripture that speaks of the Lord acting as a shepherd, and it is the passage that we get to consider tonight. This passage is meant to be a great comfort to people, and even as we read it tonight, it is easily one of the most recognizable passages of all in Scripture. Typically, when you hear it, somebody has died. But it is not a passage for the dead, but for the living. Let us consider how Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And more than that, what that means for us as pastors of Crossway. Although we have read this text already, I will read it again. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of our God. What does this tell us about our tasks as shepherds? What does this tell you, Josh, about your task as a shepherd? First, as shepherds, we provide provision. As shepherds, we provide provision. David, by all accounts, lived a fairly difficult life. The beginning of his life perhaps was easy. The end of his life was perhaps good. But for a vast majority of the middle of his life, he had nothing but difficulty. God anoints him, gives him a kingdom. And yet even as we spoke of this morning, God waits to provide that kingdom in fullness to him. And during that wait, he is on the run. He is on the run hiding and evading from a vengeful king. He hungers and he thirsts. He does not know when his life might come to an end. 
So it is not a little bit surprising that he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David apparently, even in all of his running and with all of his problems, knew that God provides everything that he has needed. God always fulfills what he needs. That is a grand statement to start off with. If we are to consider that Jesus does this for us, the question becomes, as as shepherds, how are we to do this for our people? How, How are we supposed to provide for our people this way? Are we just supposed to give of it ourselves? I mean, sure, if somebody needs $20, we can probably meet that, but there are larger needs. There are people who have have health problems in this church. I only have one heart. If you need a kidney, I can spare one, but the rest of my parts are kind of one-offs. I need those things. How are we supposed to, to help? How are we supposed to give people all that they need so that they can say, I shall not want? Let's be clear. We are not to give all that we have freely to our people, not because it requires too much of us, but honestly because it simply wouldn't be good enough. The answer to this problem of what we are supposed to do probably comes at the beginning of verse 2, where it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. This, as I thought through this this week reminded me of a passage which actually cleared up a little bit of a problem for, for me as, a, as I read through other passages this week. I think I know where this is fulfilled in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 6, we read these words. Jesus, after a long day of teaching and preaching, went ashore, saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep, were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, Well, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Which is Quite a spicy answer to give to the Lord, right? Are we supposed to go spend $10,000 to help feed these people? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish, right? I'm sure that they downplayed that, right? Five, five whole loaves, Lord, and two fish. Let us break them up and let's eat. Let's feast. This will be awesome. And he commanded them all. That is all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Notice, Jesus teaches these people and he has compassion on them because he knows that they are like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he make his sheep do? He makes them lie down in green pastures. It's interesting because that particular passage in Mark has kind of confused people. They talk about the green that's present there as this weird detail in in a a gospel that lacks many details. Mark is in a hurry to get from one passage to another, to another, to another. If you read the other synoptic gospels, they, they dwell on things where Mark is just zipping through them. And so the idea that Mark takes time out to mention that this is green grass is a bit odd. But I think this is why. Jesus is the good shepherd. He sees his sheep. He has compassion on them, and he makes them lie down. 
The question is, what do the disciples do? In this whole time, what are the disciples there to do? They give out simply the provision that Jesus makes available. 5,000 people as Jesus multiplies fish and loaves and feeds every single one of them with more left over. The baskets, we might say, runneth over. Jesus makes the provision of food, makes the provision of life for his people available. He makes them lie down in green pastures. So, that is what we do. We don't make you sit down outside in green pastures, but we do give you Jesus. We preach, teach, and hopefully live Jesus. We make the provision of Jesus available to our people. We have compassion on them and press him into them. That is how we provide for people. We don't provide by giving them things that we have, even though we are grateful to do so. We are grateful to give help. We are grateful to give a cup of cold water to the least of these. We are grateful to provide monetary assistance if that's what is needed. But that is not what you truly need. What you need is Jesus. That is what we are to provide. He leads me, he says, beside still waters. The Spirit in John is continually related to water. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Lest you think that water and spirit there are something separate. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Later on in chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He leads you beside still waters. He provides comfort and peace and rest for you. That is precisely the name of the Spirit. He is the comforter of the people in the Gospel of John. That Spirit is nothing else besides the Spirit of Christ. We give them provision, Josh. We give them provision, Richard. Not by pointing them to better financial stability in this world. That's good and helpful. Not by feeding their bellies. That's good and helpful. But by giving them what they truly need, and that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the provision for the people of God. He is the one who leads us in paths of righteousness. We point to his life and say, this is the good life to live. This is the righteous path to walk on, that he might be glorified. As shepherds, we provide provision. But secondly, as shepherds, we provide protection. Verse 4 is probably the most famous verse in this passage, which is itself a very famous passage. If you were like me and you grew up outside of the church in the 90s, you realize how famous this passage is because when you read it, instead of hearing David ringing in your ears, you hear Coolio ringing in your ears as he sings Gangster's Paradise, which shows you how far this passage gets out. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The picture is a cavernous, dark, steeply-sided valley that cannot be gone around or over, but only through. Many people read the valley of the shadow of death thinking that this is something that 
that exists when death comes near to us, when we are warned of death, when we are warned of a health crisis, or a friend tells us that their life might be in danger. But it is not just meant for times when death comes near. I think the tenor of the verse is that this is just, this is David's existence. Yes, the Lord provides for him. But we need to hear clearly what David says. The valley of death is all around him. He does not say, even though I walked through the valley. He does not say, if I walk through the valley. He does not say, when I walk through the valley. He does not say, I will walk through the valley. He says, I walk through the valley. This is his reality. The Lord provides for him. The Lord gives him all that he needs, yet he still exists in that valley. This is no different from us. This is the age we live in. We live in the age of the valley of the shadow of death. It clings to us and it hangs on everything that we have and do. In our community group, we talked about this the last time that we met as we studied through Ephesians 2, where we read these words, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the world in which we live. It is the air that we breathe, it's the land that we walk, and it's the powers that we obeyed. This is indeed a world with devils filled. Paul probably puts it a little bit more on the nose in Galatians 1.4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This age is present. This age is evil. It is tainted. It is wretched. And it is ready to be destroyed. Unless you think that this is simply a description of the age of Rome, thinking that we have now come out of it. It is not just a description for the ages of the grand monarchies of Europe. It is not just a description of the dark ages, but it is still true now. Friends, this world is a valley of death. It is not just a valley of death in China. It is not just a valley of death in sub-Saharan Africa. It is a valley of death in America itself. Not just in pockets of ideologies, not just in the ideologies of the LGBTQ+, not just in the academies, not just in our educational systems, not just in social media, but the entire complex of realities in which we live are framed by, consist of, and have woven through them evil. You live in the valley of the shadow of death. People have tried to call America the shining city on a hill. Friends, that is the kingdom of God. That is not America. America is fooling itself with that. David says, I will not fear I will not fear. I know that death surrounds me, but I won't fear. Why? If we were in China, we might fear that the government would come in through those doors. If we were in Indonesia or in the Middle East, we might fear that the government would come in and break our meeting up and do worse things than that to us. Why should we not fear here? Is it because we have a constitution? That didn't work for African Americans for like 200 years, man. Ask a Japanese-American who lived in 1940 what the Constitution did for them. It did not help them being put in concentration camps. 
The Constitution is a piece of paper. As glorious as that piece of paper might be, it cannot battle the evil of men. The thing that will keep us from fearing the military coming through those doors or the state police of Michigan coming through those doors is not a piece of paper. It is God himself. We will not fear. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We know the presence of God. He disciplines us. He leads us. He helps us. He pushes us forward. Our job as elders is to continually point these things out. Our sheep ought not be comfortable in the valley of death. They are not to try to make this their home, to work out the kinks and the problems and the issues. There's a prominent leader in the North American Mission Board who, writing a book on replanting churches, on what it means for the churches to actually grow and have success in the world, very early on in the book, he goes and he says, it is important, listen, it is important. He marks this out himself. This is important that we understand how to define success as we replant churches. Great. I think that's true. What does a successful church look like? What does a successful church replant or a successful church plant look like? What does a successful church look like? Again, this is a leader in the North American Mission Board. He says this, success, bearing fruit in the life of a church, means having a pattern of disciples making disciples who make disciples. Fair enough. He finishes that by saying that results in a community being noticeably better. So you make disciples and you make more disciples and then your community magically gets better. Paul made disciples and Ephesus rioted. Our job is not to fix the present evil age. Our job is not to make this dark place a little more palatable. It is not to splash some color on the walls and call it pretty but to show others there's a way out. As shepherds, we are to preach and teach that there is something better than this world. There is something better than this country. There is something better than this place to continually present that to our people. Rather than getting comfortable, we tell them to hold fast, to find their way through to the true light on the other side. Notice what David says. He says, even though I walk through the valley, He doesn't make it his home. He doesn't camp out and talk about how lovely it is and peaceful and quiet and dark. He says, no, I walk through the valley. As shepherds, we point out dangers. We point out the pitfalls. We point out the wolves that look like sheep. We lead our people to better things. We paint a picture of a better place so that they will long not for a cheap imitation of a city on a hill, but for the true city on a hill. We paint a picture of that city that comes down from heaven so that they will never be confused. We take our sheep by the hand and lead them through the valley. And lastly, we as shepherds provide our people with promise. Verses 5 and 6, David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think that David is being quite saucy with that. Those who thought little of David those who sought to end his life, who considered him as worthy only of death, who were ready to see him not only as a corpse, but to spit on that corpse, are called together by the God of the universe, the God whose power is unimaginable, whose glory is undeniable, and to watch as that God 
prepares a feast for David and honors him in their presence. Now, you might think that this is a beautiful picture of reconciliation, that David and his enemies are reconciled at this table. Okay, you're a better person than I am because I don't think that that's what's going on. I think what's going on is his his enemies are invited to look upon what they spit on. His enemies are invited to look upon the honor that God places on him. They are not invited to the feast to partake. They are invited to the feast to see the glory of David that God pours out on him. This is the eschatological vision of Haman parading Mordecai around Susa. You think little of David, but the God of the universe thinks much of him. In the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. And the lavishness of this, the anointing of his head is a sign of blessing and honor. The overflowing cup is a gratuitous blessing of God, ever-flowing goodness being given to him. He says goodness and, follow, and mercy follow him all of his days. Even as he goes through the valley of the shadow of death, God's goodness is there. God's mercy is there because he knows he is indeed walking through it. He knows that he will indeed come out the other side. He knows that there is a time when there will be a feast prepared for him in the presence of everyone who thought of him as nothing, where God will make much of him. And the lavishness of this particular feast should not be thought of as some sort of one-time event. It is the simple fate of all of those who will dwell in the house of the Lord. Just a couple chapters back, a couple of Psalms back, Psalm 16, we read, You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Shepherds, hold this promise out to our people. Not for a better valley, but for a better city. One made by God, where goodness, mercy, oil, and wine flow. Where justice is found and where peace and righteousness kiss. We don't give wasted talks about how things are generally going to work out for you in this world, about how if you trust God, things will kind of smooth their way out and be okay. The cross is not a talisman to provide you with good luck. Friend, let's be honest. That job you hate, you may have it the rest of your life. The health problems that you would like to go away may dog you forever until the day you die. You may struggle in this world to find your place friend of mine, the better part of a decade, suffered greatly. He's a gifted man. Can't use his gifts. He does sporadically when he can. But he has had over 16 back surgeries in 10 plus years, many of them debilitating. He lives either with a constant opioid addiction to kill the pain, or as he has now decided, coming out of that opioid addiction, which nearly killed him, constant, ferocious pain that he just has to live with. He has told me very bluntly 
that if this life, if, if all he had was the promise of, of this world, his desire to continue in it would be very small. But nevertheless, he holds on. Why? Why hold on? He knows very well. God didn't promise him painlessness. God never promised him an end to his suffering. He didn't promise him an end to worrying and anxiety. He knows that in the valley, those things are present. He knows that he will see the eyes of the wolves. He knows that he will hear their growls. He knows that death will press upon him. He knows that it will be an ever-present companion for him, that pain and suffering are part of that journey. But he also knows that there's a feast at the end. He also knows that there is a place where there's comfort and rest for his sorrow, where he will be free to run and play with his kids as he so desires, where he will be better than the man that he used to be, which he can't even be now. That, that is what we, as shepherds, hold out. It is the promise of a better place. Not that God will take care of all of your problems here. That's a fantasy. He has never once in his word promised you that. He has not promised you that your relationships are going to be okay. That reconciliation with that friend that has ripped you apart or with your family that has been ripped apart is ever going to be put back together. He's not promised you that your body is going to hold up over the years. He has promised you that he will resurrect you from the dead. He has promised you that there will be a time when the feast will be so lavish that you will forget your worries and your sorrows, where the anointing will be so full, you will feel the fullness of the blessing of God upon you, and you won't remember a lick of the sorrow that you had. And that in the end, it will be all the better for the sorrows we endure. So we hold out as shepherds that you continue, that you don't stop, you don't lie down yet, you don't give up, but you press on. We guide, we direct, we push, we find wayward sheep and we point them in the right direction. We pick up those who linger behind, carrying them if we have to that they might find their way through and home. They're home to God's house where Jesus has prepared a place for them. Friends, this is our business as pastors. That is what we do. Yeah, we do administrative stuff. Yeah, we misprint bulletins. Yeah, we do all this, this other rigmarole that's part of, of the job of a pastor part of the vocation of a pastor, part of the calling of a pastor when they're placed in worldly situations. But the end result is this. We tell you that Jesus Christ is good. That he is all you need. That he is sufficient for all of your needs. 
that he will provide everything that you could possibly have to have in this world, that he will protect you from the valley, and that he has prepared a better place for you. So hold on. Persevere. Get through. Maintain your faith. We will do all that we can because God has given you to us as sheep and it is our calling to get you to your master. Gentlemen, we are simply to lead his sheep home. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, our good shepherd. He always leads us in righteous paths, in good paths for his name's sake. May every shepherd here at Crossway do the same. Specifically tonight as we think of Josh, we pray for your wisdom over him. We pray that you would keep him from sin. Let him lead and manage your house well. We pray this for the sake of your name and for the sake of your sheep. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Josh, would you come forward? I would, yeah, yeah, sit, sit. I really wanted him to sit here while I preached. He said no. If you are a man who has been ordained in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are more than welcome to come forward. There's a time where we will pray over Josh. We have done this before, we will do it again. We pray for God's protection over him, for God's wisdom to be upon him. We pray that God will continue to mold him and make him into more Christ-like man that he might be a model of integrity and he might be a model of holiness for his people. Even as he is, may he be all the more so. If you are ordained in the church, would you please come forward, lay your hands upon Josh, and let us pray for him. Let us pray. Father, we read in Psalm 23 that David's head was anointed with oil that you provided richness for him, that mercy followed him. Josh is in need of those things as well. He needs to know that your spirit dwells with him. He needs to know that you desire good for him. He needs to know as much as any other sheep does that there is a city on the far side, that the valley will not overtake him, that the darkness will not overcome him. Shepherds have a distinct responsibility in this world to bear things that the sheep do not have to bear. The valley for them can be darker and it can be deeper. But they also need a clearer picture and should have a clearer picture of what that city on a hill means. So that they would hope and long for that city to be able to press that hope into their people to be able to tell the stories of that good hope to their sheep, leading them and guiding them to that better place. Give Josh fortitude as he leads. Give him wisdom. Give him compassion. Let him lead gently, not being overbearing, not filled with anger and bitterness, but with compassion, with a desire to see Jesus Christ glorified in his people in these people that you have given to us. Keep upon Josh a double portion of your wisdom 
a double portion of your spirit, that he might guide and direct, that he might lead and charge forward with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ upon his lips, with faith burning in his heart, and with a desire for the good of the sheep in everything that he does. May you do this not for the glory of Josh Lebeau, not that people might heap praise upon him. May you do it for your name's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.